0: You are listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a bi monthly podcast where we discuss new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science, Arizona State University's School of Life Sciences, and the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fisheries Sciences. This is Eric Moody with the Making Waves podcast for the Society for Freshwater Science. Joining me this week on Skype is Dr. Wyatt Cross, who is an associate professor of ecology at Montana State University and the director of the Montana Water Center. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me here. It's great. So in stream ecology, a lot of scientists work on small headwater streams that could easily be weighted in, and you've worked in both these small streams as well as large rivers. My first question is, what motivated you to start working in larger rivers? Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, your background is working in small streams.
1: Yeah, you know, to be totally honest, my motivation was I got a job <laughs> working on large rivers, and that was my, one of my postdoctoral positions was working on the Colorado River, and so that was the original sort of shift and it was it was pretty intimidating you know to go from working in small streams you can barely get wet in at Calmta to basically getting in a dry suit and, and being in the Colorado River and working at really much larger scale so it was it was definitely intimidating but got sort of thrown right in the mix there and realized that It was uh, a lot of the same kinds of sampling and and questions and things, but just at a a larger, more logistically challenging scale, basically.
0: You said that you notice a lot of the same questions and same approaches. Do you see any differences in the fundamental ecological processes that are driving interactions in large and small rivers?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's... That's a really tough question. It's it's like one I'd like to ask my graduate students on their comprehensive exam. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good comps kind of question. Many of us were trained and sort of came up at this time where the river continuum concept dominated, right? And we tend to think about small streams and large rivers as being really different and largely different because of their longitudinal positions along along a river network. And so this classic notion that but along this gradient, you have very, very large differences in biological structure and ecological processes and things like that. And I think it's you know it's undeniable that there are big differences between these systems, right? So if we think about the you know, types of habitats in small streams versus large rivers, you might have very different types of sediment size, for example might have very different types of, of resources that fuel food webs, so shifting from terrestrial leaf litter to algae to find particular organic matter and things like that. And, of course, that's kind of the, the canonical framework that we were all brought in, up in. But I think more recently I'm becoming convinced that the small streams and large rivers are much more similar than they are different. And, and I think that's especially when we think about things like basic patterns that, ge- that actually generate those physical or, or ecological processes, right? So, you know, a good example of this is, is, is geomorphology. So, so we know that geomorphology is a really important determinant of things like biological production. So certain certain habitats are, are much more productive than others based on things like how stable they are, how stable the substrates are, how those habitats concentrate resources how those different habitats alter flow environments and so on. And so, my, it's funny because my lab group was just recently reading a paper by Ellen Wool mm-hmm. about particle dynamics and basically this discussion about are there are there differences across these scales. And and one of our conclusions was that you know there are huge similarities in terms of the, the key drivers of, for example, productivity, where really stable substrates in large rivers, things like wood, large wood or or big bedrock outcrops or talus. Those are the productive hotspots in large rivers because they're not they're stable and they're not moving as much and the, and the same types of dynamics are true in small streams as well. So there are huge differences in small streams versus large rivers, but but I think it's it's more productive to think about how these these common characteristics scale with size. And I, that to me that's super exciting and, and there hasn't been much work done there. You
0: also mentioned that it's logistically difficult to work in these larger rivers compared to a, a small stream that you could just walk across. Mm-hmm. And I imagine, you know, you've worked in places like the Colorado River and Grand Canyon, and then now in the Yellowstone and Missouri Rivers and Montana, mm-hmm. and these are really beautiful places, but they're also <laughs> fairly remote. What challenges do you face in doing this type of large river ecology in places like this?
1: Practically and logistically, there's no question. That it's it's much more difficult to work in these in these sort of remote locations. And especially the Grand Canyon, right? So that's a place that you can't really, you can't drive to many locations in the Grand Canyon and work. We did a couple of the sites, but most of the sites we had to take river trips down on the river and, and, and do our sampling. That was super fun, but it was also this situation where you, you get ready, you know, you're, you're spending a lot of time and effort and resources on on a single trip. And everything's gotta go really well, <laughs> you know. You've gotta make sure that you've got everything and that everyone's on board and that your plan is really straightforward and, and you know it's it's all gonna work out. And you, you can't run back to the lab and grab something you forgot. So in terms of that, it's it's challenging to make sure you get the most out of each of those trips. The Yellowstone and Missouri rivers are a little bit different. Yeah, they're they're pretty remote, but they're still drivable mostly, at least in terms of getting to some of the sites. Mm-hmm. Many of the, the, the stretches that we work on out there, you do have to use it like a jet boat and boat around and and get to different locations. And so, again, that's like logistically just a, a huge deal. And sometimes the water's low in the Yellowstone. You get stuck in the sand. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, my student Eric Scholl could tell you lots of stories about spending way too many hours trying to figure out how he's going to dig this jet boat out. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I think it's, it's way more challenging from a practical perspective. But it's also more challenging, I think, to conceptualize. And so, you know, if you think about working in a small stream, most of the things you're interested in, most of the organisms that you're working on are all operating at scales that you can walk around and observe, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in a couple hundred meters, you can sort of encompass the, the important ecological processes like metabolism, leaf decomposition, et cetera. And you can also encompass the, the ranges of the organisms that exist there, the invertebrates, there are small fishes and so on, amphibians, et cetera. When you get to larger systems, and this is a really important point that I think Kurt Fausch, Colton Baxter, and those guys made in, in their Riverscapes paper, that we have a much harder time perceiving the important ecological processes at larger scales, right? And so you really have to start to get your head around scale, sort of zooming out and saying, you know, what at what scale do things matter? So, you know, a good example of that is, is in the Yellowstone and Missouri Rivers. We're working on this project in the context of an, the endangered pallet sturgeon. And again, my student Eric Scholl is working on sort of constructing food webs and and of course, during the year, those things migrate and travel huge distances, right? Mm. Even when they're foraging, so they might they might forage across tens of kilometers. And so many of us are used to getting into a stream and, and working on these relatively small sections. But basically, what Eric had to do was think about what's the scale in these rivers that matters for these for these top predators. And then he basically had to match his conceptual framework and match his is sampling to a scale that matched these important predatory fishes. So that was another challenge too, just start, like getting our heads around what, how do we sample the food web? How do we sample invertebrates and learn something about these highly mobile large predators? So not only are there sort of these practical issues, there's also the conceptual issues of, of getting your head around what's going on at these really large scales. Let's get back to some of your work in
0: the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. So you have you mentioned primary production and secondary production earlier, and a lot of your work has focused on that uh, in particular. One thing that I think is interesting is that you found that the production of non-native fish, especially rainbow trout, seems to be higher just below Glen Canyon Dam, which is sort of where we think about the Grand Canyon starting in, in the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. So how does the dam actually affect downstream food web structure, and especially why does it affect trout so much?
1: The dam has, like like many other large dams, has massive effects on food web structure just below in the tailwater uh, and beyond. It's important to sort of think about the fact that, that dams like this fundamentally alter the physical template. So this large desert river that should be turbid warm during certain times of the year, super cold during other times of the year, has been altered physically in a, in a big way. So many of these large dams have hypolimnetic releases, and so there's, there's cold, clear water coming out from the hypolimnion, the lower part of the lake, and, and feeding that that tailwater system. And so you get really typically pretty cold waters, you get clear waters, and you also get dampening of a lot of the important variation that matters for organisms. If you look at the temperature variation in, in Glen Canyon and below, it's, it's really constrained. It doesn't get really hot. It doesn't get really cold. If you look at the, the variation in flow, it's, it's totally wacky. I mean, it's like the, the, the flow is, is basically managed for things like hydropower largely or just moving water from Powell to Lake Mead. And all of these changes play a huge role in affecting the biota, right? So, so a lot of the biota that should be there, a lot of the native biota are filtered out because they are missing their important natural cues, like temperature cues or, or other sorts of things like that. Right below the dam, it is really strange food web, right? So at the, at the base of the food web in Glen Canyon, you have big flowing mats of super productive green algae, Cladophora most of which isn't passed up into the food web. So it's there's big flowing mats of Cladophora and almost nothing is feeding on that, that source of, of productivity. At the next level up, you've got a bunch of weird things like New Zealand mud snails that were accidentally introduced. You've got gambrous scuds like crustaceans that were purposefully introduced to feed trout. You've got other things like cold adapted black flies that you know, really shouldn't be in that stretch. So you've got that weird sort of primary consumer base, and then you've got a trophy rainbow trout fishery that we have constructed and managed and, and maintained. And so from, a, from an ecologist's perspective, you, you know, you get into the system and you're like, this is, this is a Franken River. You know, this is like weird and, and mismatched, and, and these species shouldn't be together, and they haven't co-evolved and all those sorts of things. It sort of creates this situation that supports and maintains this this important trout fishery that is a huge part of the economy there. So long story short, I guess, is that the dam has huge effects on the physical template and that cascades up to affect these higher trophic levels. As you move downstream, that changes the course. So as you you get downriver, you start to pick up tributary inflows. So there are, there are important tributaries like the Perea River, the Little Colorado River, and so on, that dump huge amounts of sediment into the Grand Canyon. And in some ways, not totally, but in some ways, they kind of start to re-naturalize the system. right? So, so temperatures start to climb, sediment and turbidity starts to climb, and so on. And you start to see a very slow recovery of some of the native taxa as you move downstream. And in particular, you see things like the, the endangered humpback chub mm-hmm. that are able to hang on largely because of these tributaries for spawning, but also for providing high, warmer temperatures and turbidity and things like that.
0: If uh, any listeners have ever looked at a hydrograph before for a stream, you should look at the hydrograph below Glen Canyon Dam because it's one of the strangest ones I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that the... Due to the strange flow regime caused by the dam, the food web below is very sort of unusual. And to alleviate that, there's been some work doing the experimental releases of water causing floods. Could you talk about sort of who's leading that charge and what the idea is and how it's working?
1: Yeah, so this, uh, you know, if we go back far enough, I think the first experimental flood was in 1996, if I'm not mistaken. There are a lot of different angles to this. and, And one of those is that, Because of the new hydrology below the dam, beaches downstream, sediment dynamics downstream, have been changed in a big way. So in a natural, large desert river, you have building and eroding of of these big sandy beaches, and those are important for a lot of reasons, but one of the really important ones is that those habitats set up backwater environments that are thought to be really important for, say, early life history of, of some of these native fishes like humpback chub and, and in some other places other fishes. That was part of the reason behind trying to do these experimental floods was to provide more of that backwater habitat for the endangered humpback chub. The other major part of, of, of this floods was the idea that we needed to rebuild beaches so people could camp, right? Mm. And so, of course, that's a that's a huge part of the economy too is recreation, boating, and, and camping. And and over time, these beaches were becoming so eroded that it was becoming hard for people, you know, find campsites along the river. And so, in a way, it was kind of a win-win. We'll, we'll do these experimental floods and hopefully provide new habitat for not for native fishes like humpback chub and hopefully reset some of those sandbars once there's enough sediment in the system to, to be sort of redistributed for those sandbars it, it got a little bit tricky because there was this perception that floods were bad for the rainbow trout fishery below the dam and so a lot of the, the fishing guides and and others were, were sort of not super happy about these floods because there was the perception that it scoured the river and it it was bad for trout populations because a lot of them were scoured downstream and, and, a, and a number of other reasons. But you know, truthfully, we didn't have a lot of, of good data on the response of this, this ecosystem to floods. There'd been a little bit collected in, in previous flood, but nothing in terms of sort of integrative ecosystem work, trying to understand connections in the food web and, and so on. And so, you know, while we learned a lot from the prior work, we were really sort of geared up to to follow energy flows and how the flood affects those. And so I think that you know the biggest take home from our from our work on the flood below the dam was that floods actually benefited rainbow trout. The floods scoured the bed, right? And scoured all that big sort of non-palatable cladophora and sort of created a fresh new environment of things like diatoms. Uh, and, and rapid growth of other parts at the base of the food web, that then fueled the production of certain taxa, like black flies and chironomid midges, that are important in the diets of trout, and especially juvenile trout. And so, what we saw after the flood was this sort of flushing or resetting of the system, and that cohort of juvenile trout that emerged from the gravel did awesome. <laughs> like they, mm-hmm. they had a lot of a lot of their preferred food was readily available, and it was one of the largest cohorts we'd seen to that point. And so it was really interesting and exciting because it's it sort of that, that science, when we started presenting this to the managers and so on, started to change the way they thought about these floods and think, oh, well, maybe, maybe these floods can be positive for the rainbow trout fishery, and they can also be positive for building backwater habitat downstream for humpback chub. And that's the tricky part is, like, you know trying to manage this franken river in a way that that benefits things that shouldn't be there but that we want there but also benefits things that should be there and we want to maintain so mm-hmm. that's the challenge i think
0: so your work in the colorado river was primarily aimed at uh, basic research but it's also been able to tie in to certain monitoring goals and certain goals such as maintaining the recreational fishery and, and maintaining populations of endangered species. So, what were you able to learn about how to integrate basic research and into applications such as that?
1: When we got funding to do that that the original work in the, in the Grand Canyon, it was really exploratory and it was coming from this idea that, you know, we knew very little about how the ecosystem worked and we had to put in this sort of sweat equity to understand how these food webs work. But all along, of course, the, the, the goal was to be able to monitor the system in an adaptive management framework. And so the idea was we would take some of the things we learned from our research and pass that on uh, in terms of trying to understand and monitor the ecosystem for long periods of time in the future. It takes a lot of people, a lot of effort, a lot of time, and so on. And so we really were, were trying to trying to help the Grand Canyon Monitoring and Research Center developed a monitoring scheme. Now, what we learned and some of the things that we found out were that, again, we can't we can't go out and sample the benthos. We can't sample the food web at, at the same level that we've always that we did for this research. And so, one of the ideas was to shift towards measuring th- other metrics that are much easier to monitor, but still tell you something about change in the ecosystem. And so, one of those, Ted Kennedy, who's a, a biologist at the USGS. Flagstaff at the Grand Canyon Monitoring Research Center, developed a a method for measuring emergence, for measuring invertebrate emergence at at large scales and and doing it in a way that captured really large patterns across space and time to look at how changes in dam management influence productivity through this metric of of aquatic invertebrate emergence. The super cool thing about this is that he, he thought to himself, well, there's a ton of of, of boat people out there that are taking people down the river every single day, right? And many of these boat people are extremely interested in the science and interested in helping. And so he developed this citizen science program where he, he sort of sent out guides on trips with these little kids to, when they're in camp, kind of cooking food or whatever and working with their clients to be collecting emergence overnight or whenever they were there during the day. And um, so he's developed these incredible data sets on insect emergence across space and time using citizen science. And if anyone's interested, I mean, there's, a, there's some really amazing videos about this. Jeremy Monroe with Freshwater Illustrated has produced a video about it. And and it's just a cool, cool way to sort of monitor some of these factors that we couldn't do with with normal paths of science, basically. So yeah. um, it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, there are, we, you know, we couldn't keep doing what we were doing in perpetuity because it just takes too much money and resources. But what Ted and others at the Grand, Ted Kennedy and others at the Grand Canyon Monitoring Research Center are starting to find is that these other metrics, that some of which can be employed by citizens, can be really effective in helping us understand long-term change. So that's been super exciting. Thanks. Thank you. Eric.
0: You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. For more information on this speaker, the Making Waves podcast, or the Society in general, please visit us on the web at the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. Tune in next time for another fresh idea in freshwater science.